0: in the second week of our series, Multiply, and we we'll figure out in this series how we can maximize our impact for God's kingdom. And if you were here last weekend, you know that we began our series by talking about how easy it is for us to get lost when it comes to the personal arena, the personal area of our finances. In fact, I pointed out that even though we get the privilege of living in the richest nation on the earth, when it comes to statistics about Americans and their finances, it's very, very troubling. For example, 73% of Americans name money as their number one stress factor. 84 of couples cite finances as the primary source of tension in their marriage. This one blew my mind. Compared to 132 other countries, Americans have the highest income but rank 16th in life satisfaction. Two thirds of Americans' households live paycheck to paycheck. 30% of upper income earners, that would be $100,000 or more, live paycheck to paycheck. 45% of Americans said that concerns over, quote, making ends meet, unquote, keep them up at night. And nearly half of Americans could not take care of their expenses for more than a month if they lost their job, see. And as a result of those kinds of statistics, see, we find ourselves asking questions like, how did I get into this much debt? You know, why do I feel so much financial pressure? Why am I never content with what I have? Am I going to have enough when I need it? Am I saving enough? As Christians, we often ask, am I giving enough? Well, the good news is this. The good news is the Bible is full of insight, practical insight principles and precepts about how we can handle our money. In fact, you may not know this, but there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money and how we handle our money, and we're going to cover every one of them this weekend. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. In fact, you know, if you get stressed out because of this series, uh, if this series scares you what we're going to be talking about. It really shouldn't scare you because I'll just tell you this. No one who applies biblical principles to their personal finances ever winds up upside down financially. So this is good news. You ought to be excited about this series. And if you need a little incentive to get your finances in order, let me go ahead and tell you next year, May 23rd, I'm gonna be leading another tour to Israel. Let me tell you something. If you wanna go on one trip in your life, this is a good reason to get your finances in order. This is like a three-year seminary crash course crammed into 10 days. You will learn more about the Bible. Your faith will come alive if you're on that trip with me. There's something about standing on Mount Carmel Where Elijah prayed down fire from heaven. There's something about walking where Jesus walked. There's something about being in the hills of Engedi and walking into the caves that maybe David hid in when he was running from King Saul. But we're going to be going May the 23rd through June 2nd. Uh, You can sign up, you can go to the app, all the information is there. If you sign up by August 10th, you you even save 150 bucks. And that's good biblical money management right there at, at its best. Now, last weekend, if you were here, I gave you an assignment. And this is what I asked you to do. I asked you to go home and to track your finances. See where your money's going. And many of you did it. In fact, uh, Joe, who's over our communications, told me so many people went to the app and used the resources that were available on the app. That's good news. Now, some of you walked out of here and you're, I ain't doing that. It never crossed your mind. You didn't do it. But just so you know, that hurts my feelings, but I don't think that bothers anybody. But this is what I want you to remember. The only way you're gonna get to where you want to be financially is to figure out where you are financially. And if you didn't start last weekend, I would really encourage you over the next few weeks as we go through this series, get your head out of the sand, find out where you are financially. You can get resources from the Hope app. You can get resources online, but it's never too late to start doing what's right. And this, I'm telling you, is the first step to financial freedom. Now this weekend, we're gonna kind of look at a 30,000 foot view, and we're gonna be asking the question, how does God view money? And the reason we're going to do this is because, see, as Christians, if we can get our arms around how God sees money, it should impact the financial decisions that we make in our lives. Because, see, here's the principle. When we see as God sees, we're more inclined to do as God says. Let me say that again. When we see as God sees, we're more inclined to do as God says. This is true in every area of life. You'll never have the marriage that God intended you to have until you see marriage as God sees marriage. And if you see it and you you do what he says, you're going to have that kind of marriage. It's true in parenting. It's true in every area of life. So how does God see money? How does God view our money? And I know what some of you are thinking. He just wants it. Well, let me just give you some good news. If God wanted it, he would take it. Okay, after all, that's what the government does and God's greater than the government. So if he wanted it, he would just take it. So just relax. God's not going to take your money. He would have already already taken it. Okay, now if you have your Bible this weekend, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. We're going to put the verses up on the screen. Luke chapter 16, Jesus is once again telling a parable and I think that Jesus had one goal in mind when he taught this parable and it was to help his followers understand and to see how God views our stuff, how God views our worldly possessions because again, if we can see our stuff the way God sees our stuff, then we can begin to understand what God has called us to do with our stuff and it should make it easier for us to make better financial decisions about how we handle, how we manage our stuff. Luke chapter 16, verse 1 There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so in the story, this rich man, he summons his financial advisor, he brings him in and he says to him in verse two, what is this I hear about you, give an account of your management. Now, we don't know what's going on in this scenario. Maybe the guy wasn't paying the bills, maybe he was embezzling, but the rich man, he gets word through the grapevine that the guy that's supposed to be managing his affairs, the guy who's supposed to be managing his estate is doing a horrible job. He's not doing the job. In fact, verse two concludes, he says, you cannot be my manager any longer. You have to the end of the day to get things in order. You have to the end of the week to give me the reports that you need to get me. But your job here is finished. And you'll notice it says in verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? And by the way, that is a key word. In fact, all through this parable, you're going to find words that have to do with time. What can I do now? Verse three says, my master is taking away my job. So he begins to immediately think about maybe what else he could do with the rest of his life. And it says in verse three, he says, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. In other words, he thought I could dig ditches. I guess I could do that for the rest of my life. But then he remembers that he really doesn't have the physical aptitude for that. So he said, well, I better not dig ditches. And he thinks, well, you know, I could beg. But then he remembers, "Ah, I'm not really very good at groveling. So he reads, now discover your strengths. You know, he takes the Myers-Briggs, gets some vocational testing, But he realizes that there is a problem because, see, he knows that when word of what he's done to his master, when it hits the street, he's not going to get another cush job. He's not going to get another management position. So he realizes he's got a little bit of time. He's got a little bit of opportunity. And he begins to think and he begins to process, what am I going to do with my little bit of time? What am I going to do with my little bit of opportunity so that when I no longer have a job here, I'm going to have a future somewhere? And he comes up with a plan, verse four. I know what I will do so that when, again, a reference to time, when I lose my job here, look at this. People will welcome me into their homes. In other words, people will still like me. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly. I think implied before the ball shows up and make it 400. So he says, I'm gonna cut it in half for you today. And I'm sure this guy who's indebted says, you would do that for me? Yep, I'll do it just today. One time only blue light special here at the market. Today's the day. And with a few strokes of the pen, he saves this guy a lot of money, half of what he owes. And the guy, he's like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you ne- ever need anything, anything, and I mean anything, you let me know. And this manager's like, don't worry, I will. I will. Probably sooner than you think. I'll let you know. Right, verse seven. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. So he slashes it 20%. And maybe the guy counters, his, would you take 700? He said, nope, today's special, 800. Take it or leave it. And the guy's like, I'll take it. And he says, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you ever need anything, let me know, right? And he's like, again, don't worry, I will. And he goes through this entire list of everyone who owes his boss money, and he gives them a deal of a lifetime. Now understand, he's got the authority to do it, but he only has a little bit of time. He only has a little bit of opportunity. And he's the figuring out how he can leverage it for his own good. Now this is what I'm, I'm sure of. I am sure that all the people that were sitting around listening to Jesus were thinking the same thing that we're probably thinking right now about this manager. What a loser. What a jerk. What a dirty, rotten scandal. Because see, these people had been following Jesus long enough they knew that whenever Jesus told a parable, somewhere God was in the parable and somewhere they were in the parable. And they're trying to figure out who's God in the parable? Where am I in the parable? But they do know one thing, whoever this manager is, he is a jerk. But the real twist in the story is in verse eight when the master discovers what the manager had been up to. It says the master commended, commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. In other words, the manager calls, the master calls in this crooked manager and he says to him, wow, wow, you are one shrewd dude, you know, and the manager's like, are you mad? The master's like, well, yeah, I'm a little bit mad. I mean, good gracious, but I can't be too mad at you. Look at what you did. You realized you were history. You realized you were done. You realized that you were toast. You realized you had a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity. And you took advantage of that little bit of time and you took advantage of that little bit of opportunity to make sure that you were going to have a future. Yeah, I'm a little ticked with you. That was clever. That was smart. That was shrewd. Never saw it coming. You're good. Now I remember why I hired you to start with. And again, the crowd is standing around, and they're thinking, what just happened? What did I miss? What is going on? They're totally confused. Now, thankfully, unlike in most parables, Jesus decides to explain this parable, to explain what it means. See, Jesus often didn't do that. Jesus would tell a parable. The people didn't understand it. And Jesus would just say something like this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? And Jesus would just... Drop the mic and walk off, right? But this time, he decides that he's going to explain the parable. This is what he says in verse 8. He says, for the people of this world, and that's a reference to people who aren't buying in to the dream, people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. They don't recognize him for who he is. People of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. In other words, Jesus says the people of this world They're more shrewd than those of you who identify as being one of my followers. Those of you who actually believe that there is an eternity. Because see, they know how to take their little bit of time. They know how to take their little bit of opportunity and they know how to leverage it so that their future on this earth is going to be taken care of. And Jesus says, listen, you guys that are my followers, you could learn a valuable lesson from this dishonest money manager. And I'm sure all of the People in the crowd listening are still sitting there totally confused. And so Jesus continues to explain this parable. And I got to tell you, this is so powerful because in doing so, Jesus helps us understand how God views, how God sees our wealth, how God sees our stuff. First of all, understand God sees our wealth as a tool. Look what it says in verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth. Now, you may have a translation. The old school says, Use worldly mammon. And mammon's actually a good translation because mammon means more than money. I mean, yeah, it would include your money, but it would include more than your money. It would include, it would include say, your house. It would include your furniture. It would include your baseball card collection. It would include your cars, your moped. It would include your retirement fund. It's your stuff. It's your wealth. Everything, literally, it's everything that's temporary on this earth. In fact, you could read verse nine this way. I tell you, use worldly, just insert there, temporary wealth that's what it means use temporary wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings now be careful jesus isn't saying here that you can bribe or buy your way into heaven with your stuff your wealth jesus is saying this God sees all of our stuff. God sees all of our wealth and he sees it as a tool. And we need to figure out how to use our temporary wealth in such a way that when this life is over and we walk into heaven, there will be people there to welcome us because of how we use our temporary worldly wealth. For example, you may be one of those individuals and I know there are many of you, you open up your home and you allow a bunch of high schoolers to come into your home every week to have small group. And they come in. I was talking to one family. They said, we just clear out the family room. We take all the furniture out when we know they're coming. We don't even want to let them destroy it. And they, they crowd in and they wrestle around and they roughhouse and they mark up the walls and they spill soda all over the carpet. He says, we wouldn't miss it for anything in the world. What Jesus is teaching here is this. One day when you're in heaven, don't be surprised if somebody walks up to you that you don't even recognize And they say, you probably don't remember me, but when I was in high school, you had a Bible study at your house. And I didn't even believe in Jesus, God, the Bible, but there was a girl that went, so I went. And I was one of those guys who scuffed up your walls and spilled Coke all over your carpet. But because I was there, I heard the gospel and it changed my life. And I'm here in heaven with you for all eternity, and I just want to say thank you. That's what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching, and when we handle our temporary wealth, when we handle our temporary stuff this way, understand Jesus is saying it has eternal consequences. So here's the question I think we have to ask ourselves. How do I use the wealth, the stuff that God has entrusted to me to influence people for his kingdom? How do I use my wealth? How do I use my stuff in such a way that when it's gone, and again, remember, all of our stuff is temporal. What did Jesus say? It burns, it rusts, it rots, it corrodes, it spoils, it decays, it's gonna get stolen. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, Matthew six 19, don't store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's temporary, it's temporal. So here's the question. How do I use my wealth? How do I use my stuff in such a way that when it's gone, I will have something eternal to show for the stuff that was once in my care. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Once we begin to see our stuff as a tool, once you and I begin to see our stuff as a resource, it will change our attitude about our stuff. It will even change our attitude about the stuff that we collect. And there's nothing wrong with collecting stuff. But you got to understand, as Christians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 teaches this. As Christians, when we die, we are going to stand before God and we're going to give an account of our lives. Now, this will not determine whether or not we're going to get into heaven. That's already been decided when we accept the gospel, God's gift of salvation. But as Christians, God is going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave you? Now, let me tell you something. Who wants to stand before God and say, God, you know what? Just between me and you, I could have done better. I realize now I could have done more, should have done more. But God, have you seen my butterfly collection? You know, have you seen my stamp collection? Have you seen my car collection? Have you seen my China doll collection? And again, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but you have to ask the question, what is the best way to use my stuff? What is the best way to use my temporary wealth? So that when I do have to stand before God and I do have to give an account, I will be proud of how I managed it. In other words, if Jesus taught that I have a little bit of time, if he's teaching that I have a little bit of opportunity on this earth, what's the best way to leverage my wealth and leverage my stuff so that there will be people in heaven because of the way I used my stuff? I mean, I don't know about you, that's pretty compelling to me. And probably about now we're beginning to understand that according to Jesus, There are eternal ramifications attached to our stuff. There are eternal ramifications attached to our wealth. He says, it is a tool. In other words, we've been commanded not just to accumulate. We're good at that. Not just to consume. We're very good at that. The challenge is this. How do we use our wealth? How do we use our stuff so that it has eternal ramifications? When I was thinking about this message, there was somebody I couldn't help but to think of. And their name are the Caspers, and they've been around hope forever and ever and ever. And unfortunately, uh, they're moving away, and I hate to see them go. But, you know, in the early days when we were in the school and we were in the fire trap, we didn't have anything, right? So they have a beautiful 25-acre horse farm in Apex. And when we needed a place to have baptism, to have a church picnic, they would take down some of the fence rails at the horse farm, and we would come and park through the pasture, they got the horses over in the corner. They're looking at us like, what are you doing in my pasture? You know, we park all over the pasture. And then we would go up behind, and this is hundreds of us. And we would have baptism in their pool. And sometimes we would baptize 60, 80, maybe 100 people, new believers. And then we would have a barbecue. And people would be running through their house, tracking water through their house, using their restaurants. We're grilling barbecues. We are, we are not being gentle on the place. But you know what? Eternal ramifications. Later on, when we, we were in the fire trap and we were growing, you know, we even had to have shuttles then. We only had about 108 parking spots and we were at three services running about a thousand people. So we found a tire, street down the, uh, a tire store down the street that allow us to park there in the shuttle. It's just in our DNA, right? Well, we couldn't afford shuttles and we couldn't afford to lease buses back in those days. You know what we did? They had some 15 passenger vans because. They also had a daycare. And they used these, these vans to pick up kids after school, to shuttle, shuttle them around. Every Sunday, they allowed some of our people, men and women, to go over, get the keys, take their vans and use them back and forth all day Sunday, never charged us, using, using those shuttles to get people back and forth from the, from the parking lot, the off the shuttle lot, up to the fire trap where we were going to worship together. That's what Jesus is talking about here. See, Jesus said, what they did, maybe they didn't even realize it. But what they did with their stuff had eternal ramifications. Maybe it means that you begin to liquidate some of your temporary stuff so you, you can take some of that cash and you can figure out how to invest it in God's kingdom. A few years ago, when we were drilling wells in Africa and starting churches there, we were having a big fall festival. And as a part of our minor project, it was right in the middle of our minor project, a guy called me and he says, listen, I got a 66 Mustang. I'm sure somebody would like to take it and fix it up a little bit, but it runs, it's in great shape. He says, I'd like to donate it. And I'll use my minor project, I'll print some raffle tickets. And at the fall festival, if you wanna sell those raffle tickets, whatever you get, put it toward drilling wells and starting churches in Africa. And he brought a 66 Mustang and we parked it under the portico and I think we sold almost $10,000 worth of raffle tickets and somebody won it see, what he did was he reinvested his money. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what we could accomplish for God's kingdom if we started having those kinds of conversations around our homes? See, understand, God sees our wealth as a tool. And so Jesus says, listen, followers, <laughs> you got a little bit of time. You got a little bit of opportunity. Use your wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Not because you told somebody about Jesus, not even because you shared the gospel, but because you allowed God to use your temporary stuff to impact them for eternity. In other words, God says through this parable, hey, I don't want you just to give it to me. I just want you to use it better. I don't want you just to give it away. I want you to put it back into circulation. Imagine that conversation around your home. Imagine going home this weekend and just walking through your house, walking through your attic, walking through your garage, right? And thinking, how can I use the stuff that God has allowed me to accumulate? Got a motorcycle over there, I hadn't ridden in years. Got a car I don't need anymore. Got a boat, don't even take it out anymore. How could I leverage this for His kingdom? You know what I thought of? Laura and I, we have two bikes. We spent a lot of money on these bikes. I haven't ridden that bike in three years. Neither is she. In fact, the tires, they have no air in them, right? But you know why they hang there? Because this is how Americans think. I may want to ride them one day. And then, of course, why hang them back up for three more years, right? But I thought, what if I could find a ministry that could actually use those bikes or maybe I sell those bikes and I donate it to a certain area of ministry. Maybe I do that to help a kid go on a mission trip or something. But imagine if we began to have those kinds of conversations. Can you see how that kind of thinking would begin to change your perspective about your stuff, even about your personal finances. But our stuff is more than just a tool. God sees our wealth as a test. Look what he says in verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. You say, well, Mike, it kind of sounds like somebody's keeping an eye on us. Yeah. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, your temporary stuff, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with some, what's this mean? Someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, if you've been paying attention, right now, it's starting to sink in. It's starting to make sense. In fact, I think the disciples who weren't the brightest bulbs in the box, I believe they even begin to get it at this point. But if the light still hasn't come on, let me tell you what Jesus is saying. Let me tell you what he's getting at. He's saying this. First of all, Jesus was teaching... At best in this life, at best, from God's perspective, at best in this life, we have very little. And it's because, see, all of our stuff in this life is temporal. At best, at best, we have stuff that spoils, evaporates, rusts, burns, gets stolen, It's temporal. That's what he means by whoever can be trusted with a little. But then second, even the little we have isn't really ours. You see that line in verse 12, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property. See, this goes back to what Jesus taught over and over again through the gospels. Nothing is ours. God owns it all and everything we have, we have because God in his grace gave it to us. If you have money and wealth, God gave it to you. If you have good looks, God gave it to you. If you have talent, God gave it to you. If you have brains, God gave you your brains. And Jesus is saying this, I'm watching you. And I wanna see how you're gonna use my stuff, and I'm especially curious to see how you use the little, the temporal, because if I can trust you with the little, then I can trust you with the lot. But if I can't trust you with cars and houses and stocks, stuff that's gonna deteriorate, then I know that I can't trust you with stuff that has eternal value. So when you get right down to it, all of our stuff is a test, are you ready? It's a test to find out what we really are committed to. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, all you have to do is look at your bank account. All you have to do is look at your stock portfolio, your visa statement, your safety deposit box. You'll know where your heart is because your heart is reflected by what you do with what you think is your stuff. It's all a test. Again, what if we really thought this way? What if we lived as Christians our lives by this philosophy that says, no matter how much we amass in this life, it's really only a little, little bit from God's perspective. No matter how valuable something is that we own, from God's perspective, it's all going to burn. No matter how much we accumulate, it's not really ours. It's God's. That's what Jesus was teaching. In other words, God is watching to see how we handle his stuff because it tells him who is and who isn't trustworthy to be blessed and be rewarded in heaven. Again, this has nothing to do with who does and who doesn't go to heaven. It has to do with the reward that we're going to receive in the next life, the reward that we're going to receive in heaven. So not only is everything we have a tool, it's also a test, and God is just simply looking for faithful men and women who realize I have a little bit, and what little bit I have, it isn't even mine, it's God's. So I better figure out how to be faithful. And then he makes His final point in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And we would expect him to say, as I said last week, you cannot serve God and the devil. He didn't say that. He says, you cannot serve God and your stuff. You can't serve God and your wealth. And that tells me that God can look at how we handle our stuff, our wealth, and he can tell what, and he can tell who we're committed to. But again, it's not about whether or not we're going to go to heaven or hell. It's more practical than that. Really, it comes down to this. Who's really the Lord of my life? That's what it comes down to. Is it my stuff or is it my heavenly Father? So God says, listen, all I gotta do is look at how you handle your stuff. Tells me everything I need to know. Tells me who you belong to. Tells me what your value system is. It tells me what you prioritize over me. All I have to do is look at how you handle your stuff. But I want you you to hear how the story ends, verse 14. I love this. The Pharisees, notice says who love money, heard this and were sneering at Jesus. (sighs) Right, right. You know why they were sneering? It made them uncomfortable. They didn't like it. And maybe this is making you uncomfortable. But let me ask you a question before you get mad. Imagine if you would have lived this way over the past five to ten years, just over what we've learned the last two weeks. First of all, can you imagine how much better off you would be financially? To start with, if you would have applied what we talked about last week, you would know where your money's going. That's not a mystery. You would know. Second, you would be making financial decisions through the lens of how can I best use my stuff not just for me, but for others? And how can I use my stuff as an expression of my worship and devotion to God? I mean, can you see how much better your decisions would be financially? Can you see how much better off you would be financially? If you were making every decision when you were getting ready to purchase, to consume by thinking, Is this wise? I got a little bit of time. I got a little bit of opportunity. Is this wise? Let me tell you something. I got an email from a guy this week. He says, Mike, took me a while, finally figured it out. The more you give, the more you have. Thanks. Sign his name. Now, a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, God mysterious. He goes, whoo. Gonna put some money in your bank account. Whoo. You know, right? You know what happens? When you begin to manage your money God's way, giving is certainly a part of it. But you know why you have more? You figured out how to manage your money. So not only can you give more, you have more because you're applying these biblical principles as it relates to your temporary wealth. Let me tell you something. If this scares you, in other words, if you're thinking, oh, honey, if we do this, we'll never get a new car. We'll never get our new house. We'll never get our new golf cart. We'll never, 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 never. Let me try to explain it this way. We uh, we keep our grandkids one night a week. Laura picks them up about 3.30 when they get out of school. I try to get off early that day. We go home, we try to go to the pool, hang out for a little while. Then often we barbecue and we have dinner together and, and then we give them baths and then we watch Wicked Tuna. That's a man show. Me and I got, I got my, my nine-year-old granddaughter, my eight-year-old grandson and my three-year-old, they, they're into Wicked Tuna. They wanna know, is the North gonna win? Is the South gonna win? We love Wicked Tuna, right? So we watch Wicked Tuna and then about 8.30, we take them to bed, we pray with them. We just had the best time every week. Next morning, they get up, we take them to school. And uh, so the other day, and I'm not sure why I'm wired this way, but I love to ask people questions that makes them uneasy and uncomfortable. I don't know why that is, right? I love to see couples who've been on like their second or third date say, so what are you guys getting married? And just watch the blood run out of their face because the guy, you know, I just love to put people on the spot like that. So Brennan, my eight-year-old grandson, he's sitting at the counter, he's eating his cereal, he's just very shy and introverted. I said, so Brennan, school's almost out. He said, yep, next Friday's the last day. I said, you got a girlfriend? No, Papa, I said, I bet you do. And Olivia's going, I bet he does too. Olivia, this is just between me and Brennan, right, right? No. I said, Brendan, is there a girl you're going to miss this summer? No, I don't have a girlfriend. I said, Brennan, have you ever kissed a girl? Gross, Papa, that's gross. I would never kiss a girl. This is what I told him. I said, listen, Brennan, I've been on both sides of this issue. <laughs> to kiss a girl or not to kiss a girl. Brendan, I'm telling you something. It's much better over here. It's much better over here. Now, let me tell you something. In the same way, if you're having a negative reaction to this message, you know why? It's because you've never been over here. I mean, do you know why this scares you? It's because everything you've ever been taught about money your entire life is consume it, consume it, consume it, consume it, spend it, spend it, spend it. When I run out, I gotta figure out a way to get some more so I can spend it too, right? And you do that, you live that way, and it's because, see, you've been thinking, here's the philosophy you live by, that somewhere down the road, there's gonna be this, ultimate sense of satisfaction. Somewhere down the road, there's going to be this ultimate sense of contentment. Somewhere down the road, you're going to say, "Whoo! finally, I have everything I want. I have everything I need. I don't want anything else. And you know that's not true. You know that's never going to happen, but see, you don't have any other options. So we consume, consume, consume. We spend. We spend and spend, and our society makes it easier because there's always something newer, something shinier, something faster, something bigger. But I'm gonna tell you something. I have never, ever met anyone who lived that way and then embraced God's way and then went back to the old way. They may be out there, but I have never, ever met them. So if this scares you, it's probably just simply because you've never, ever tried it God's way. So of course it scares you. But see, you're smart enough to know how different your life would be now if this had been the way you'd been thinking. Let me let you in on a secret. People, People consume their way into financial ruin. People don't give generously into financial ruin. It's the consumption that drives you to the edge of disaster. So understand, this way of of thinking, yeah, it benefits God's kingdom. Not only that, it benefits our own personal financial world. I mean, this is what it boils down to. (laughs) You got a little bit of time. You got a little bit of money. What are you gonna do with it? This is my prayer in this series. I am praying that God will do something amazing in our hearts. And it's not about money. I'm praying that God will do something in our hearts so we can simply live this way. Now, I told you this is going to require homework. Last week, I asked you to track your finances. If if you didn't do it, if your attitude is, oh, I I don't want to know, you're just an idiot. There's a whole book of Proverbs. You need about half of them, you know, have to do with you. Just track your finances. You've got to know where you are, where you're spending your money. You might be shot. This is your homework assignment this week. Every time you get ready to buy something, Ask God, is this wise? I'm telling you, it'll change things. This is how I picture it. I picture God looks like Robert De Niro, and meet the family. Right over that show right? is right. What it is? Meet the parents. Is that what it is? Meet the parents. Remember what he said? I'm watching you. So I just imagine God looks like Robert De Niro, saying, "I'm watching. How you managing my stuff?" I'm telling you, it'll change. It'll change. Father, give us wisdom. Give us guts. Give us common sense. I mean, good gracious. These, these are your principles. Who, the, person who, the one who owns it all. The gold, the silver, the cattle on a thousand hills. <laughs> and you're telling us how we can handle our finances and how we can make sure that it's not separate from everything else that we want to surrender to you. And not only that, how we can experience joy and financial freedom in our lives. Help us not to be afraid. Help us to understand this may be the first time in our life we experienced freedom and joy. We love you, and I'm excited to see what you're going to do in our lives over the next few weeks. In your name we pray, amen.